Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. What's going on, man? How are you? Freezing my ass off. Oh, my gosh. Well, if you've been listening for the last few months, you know that Eric moved from Connecticut to Florida, bounced around, did the Airbnb thing, really fell in love with Florida, and now tell everybody where you are. I am in the great white north, the frozen tundra, a.k.a. Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's cold as hell up here. (laughs) (laughs) And I lived here for like more than 20 years. It's not like I didn't know better. And it's not like Wyoming is a freaking tropical paradise in the middle of February. But for some reason, that transition from, you know, Clearwater Beach, Florida, Dunedin, Florida, you know, a little stopover up in Huntsville to visit y'all and then making the trek up here to Minneapolis, my body has just not acclimated at all. Even my dog's looking at me like, what in the fuck are we doing here? And she likes it cold. Well, we appreciate you guys being here with us on Westwood One every single Monday. Uh, we're going to hope that uh, Eric gets acclimated and comfortable at least long enough for me to make him uncomfortable today. You guys are in the driver's seat today. We're doing hashtag ask Eric anything. And if you, uh, think, oh man, I wish I could have asked a question. Well, you've got to follow us on Twitter. It's at 83 weeks on Twitter. That's at 83 weeks. And uh, just stay tuned for what we've got coming your way. Pretty excited about the shows that are going to be rolling in through the first of the first quarter here in 2020. But without further ado, man, let's get into it. Mike Whitaker writes, Eric, you talk about hunting a lot. What's your favorite thing to hunt? And uh, what's your favorite wild game meal? Wow. That's a great question. Near and dear to my heart for certain. Um, my favorite thing to hunt is really waterfowl ducks and geese. I, I really just really find it relaxing. It's challenging. Um, it's hard to describe the state of mind that one gets in, or at least I do when you're out there and, and, and calling the geese in or calling the ducks in, it's a real challenge and it, it kind of brings you closer to nature and all that good stuff. Don't mean to go all hippy dippy on you. Um, I used to love to hunt elk a lot. Um, really because of the physical challenge in hunting elk, uh, at least in my case, I hunted up in the, the mountains in Northwestern Wyoming and the typical elevation where we would hunt was between eight and 10,000 feet. And if you've never climbed a mountain that was eight or 10,000 feet or had to, you know, exert yourself at, at that altitude on a mountain, you know, the oxygen is really low. So you'd have to get your, you know, you'd have to start getting in shape about six months before the hunt and get your legs, you know, get your legs in shape. And more importantly, uh, get your heart and lungs in shape for that. So uh, the physical challenge was always exciting for me or, or challenging for me, I should say. The exciting part about hunting elk, it, number one, they're majestic creatures and it's, it's really, really tough to get a good shot at one. Um, but the the quality of the game is so good. The meat itself, elk is delicious, delicious, way better than beef in my opinion. And my and Mrs. Beast as well. My, my family loves elk, uh, so I loved hunting elk. I grew up, you know, uh, pheasant hunting with my dad when I was like five or six or seven years old. I would tag along and, you know, tromp through the cornfields. Obviously, not carrying a gun or anything, but just being there with my dad, my uncles, and my cousins was always something really special to me. And I enjoyed pheasant hunting as well. But I think 
you know, waterfowl is still my favorite. You know, I don't hunt elk much anymore. I go about two or three times a year, just enough to keep the freezer full because Mrs. B and I don't really buy uh, commercial beef just because, well, I won't go into it, but there's a lot of reasons why we don't and won't. Um, but, you know, Mrs. B and I can live off of an elk, you know, for two or three years. So but when, I, I think I'm due. I think our freezer's getting pretty low. So probably this fall I'll go up and hunt elk again, but primarily ducks and geese. And my favorite to eat, uh, Mrs. B makes an amazing, amazing duck recipe that she learned from a chef who was flown over here to Minnesota. Uh, This was years ago when Mrs. B and I lived in a little town called Prior Lake, Minnesota. And we lived not far from a place called the Minnesota Horse and Hunt Club, which is kind of like a really five-star golf resort only for hunters. And they brought in a chef from Germany who specialized in wild game. And my wife was a cocktail waitress at the time. This is before we even got into the wrestling business. And for whatever reason, this chef just kind of took Mrs. B under his wing and really taught her uh, how to prepare wild game and the right way to cook it and all that. So she's she's a phenomenal cook. But um, I love it all, really. You're like the most interesting dude in wrestling. I'm just convinced of that. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. James Shea writes in, does Eric have any Klondike bill stories? No, I don't, you know, and I, I feel like I kind of missed out, you know, I've, I've listened to Tony Schiavone talk about Klondike bill. And I, I've heard you guys laughing and joking about all the crazy shit that Klondike bill allegedly did. I say allegedly because I didn't see it. So until I saw, until I see it with my own eyes, it's just an allegation, but I, you know, I missed out a little bit. I only worked, you know, I mean, obviously bill worked for me, I guess, theoretically when I was running WCW, but I didn't really interface with him much. Uh, the only time I really worked with bill was when, uh, Ric Flair beat me, uh, in a, in a match to have control over WCW and, and Rick made me do all kinds of, Oh, I don't want to say menial tasks because they're important tasks, but they were far less significant than those that I would normally partake in as the former president of the company, like putting up rings and cleaning out toilets and the venues where we were at and all kinds of other things meant to just kind of put me in my place. And then one of those scenes, one of those segments, Klondike Bill was my boss and was just first of all he's trying to teach me how to put up a ring which i'd never done before legitimately you know as a as a as people like to say in the peripheral industry a shoot um so bill had to teach me how to put up a ring and obviously if you go back and watch it um he, he wasn't really all that impressed with my ring building abilities uh, this is an interesting question from W. I got to tell you, when I first saw it, it made me laugh. Uh, I can't wait to get your take. Hashtag ask Eric, instead of calling him the renegade, why didn't you call him the alternate warrior? Clearly a missed <laughs> opportunity. God, I, I wish somebody would have brought that to my attention. I mean, I would have. I think, it, well, I would have tried. I probably would have got talked out of it. But that was a, that's a very creative, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek um, but I, I, I think the reason that I would have probably been talked out of it and people would have been a little offended by it was because I think people were really trying to take the renegade seriously. And by highlighting the fact that he was a direct ripoff or the character, I should say, the character was a direct ripoff of the ultimate warrior would have only exacerbated in obviously 
you know, already uncomfortable attempt. Boy, let's see how much trouble we can get into today. I love trouble. I love me some trouble. Uh, well, here's one to get us started. Joseph writes in, can you go into detail about what your job was with WWE this last time around? It's been reported that Paul Heyman oversees all creative and other aspects of the show, but you have stated that you had no creative control for SmackDown. Hashtag ask Eric. Yeah, look, um, this is, uh, treacherous waters upon which we are about to embark. So I'm going to be a little careful about that. I hope everybody can understand. You know, there's number one, I, I have nothing but respect for everybody in WWE, everybody that I worked with some, a lot more than others. And only, I I say that only because I had more, I, I interfaced with some people a lot more than others. And I had the ability to really, uh, to see what they were capable of and where their talents were and, and how hard they work. So when I say, I, you know, have more respect for some than others, it's just because I didn't get a chance to work with everybody there, but overall, you know, my, my respect for WWE is pretty high from Vince McMahon on down. That doesn't mean that it was a great fit. That doesn't mean that the chemistry was right. That doesn't mean that the communication was right. You know, there's a lot of just fundamentally human things that could have been much, much better, I think, for everybody, for them, certainly for them, for Vince McMahon, certainly, who made the call to let me go. Um, certainly, he, he, I'm certain he was disappointed that it didn't work out. I, he, I know that as, for a fact. As, but um, look, I'm, I'm not, I can't, it's not that I'm not, it's just that I, I can't really go into specifics on this as much as I would like to. And uh, it would probably clear up a lot of misconceptions, but let me make one thing clear. And I, and I can say this because this is public knowledge. What I'm about to say is not inside information. It's not me violating any trust, uh, contractual or otherwise. There's one guy who has creative control. It's not Paul Heyman. I hate to break your bubble. And and I love Paul, by the way. I have Conrad, you and I talked about Paul a little bit when I when I visited you last week. And you know, I I, I shared with you how, you know, highly I regard Paul's creative abilities and things like that. So this is not a meant to be any kind of a, a half-assed attempt to take a shot or anything like that. But Paul Heyman doesn't have creative control. Anybody who thinks he does is kidding themselves. I know Paul doesn't, um, and neither does anybody else. One guy has creative control, and we all know who that is. So when I said, you know, while I was there, I had, I didn't have creative control. I was being honest. I didn't. Because one man did. Paul Heyman doesn't. Eric Bischoff didn't. Nobody who follows in in either my footsteps, including Bruce Pritchard, uh, or and you know how much I love Bruce, uh, or or Paul Heyman have creative control. So you, people use that term, you know, or phrase creative control very very loosely and very broadly, and they don't really know what they don't really have context. Let's put it that way as it relates to what goes on in WWE. In terms of my job, it was the same job as Paul Heyman's. Um, again, I, I think this is pretty much public knowledge. I'm not giving away too much here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be general, intentionally general, so as not to violate any just personal trust or, or contractual obligations. But uh, essentially, both Paul and I over, I, I'll, I'll, say, I'll speak to, for myself, I oversaw uh, just about everything that touched the SmackDown product. 
um, in, including creative. I oversaw the creative team in terms of managing it, in terms of staffing it, in terms of making sure things got done when it needed to get done and presented to the one person who did have creative control. Um, as well as a lot of the things that are, you know, kind of the business to business side of, of wrestling, you know, licensing and merchandising and PR and all of anything that had anything to do with SmackDown, uh, I, I was directly involved in. So it was a very, as I said, you know, it was a very big, very broad job, broad meaning that it wasn't just focused on the creative. Certainly that was a big part of it. Don't, don't. Let me uh, confuse anybody here by minimizing it, but uh, there were also a lot of other aspects of it that were equally as important. So a couple of follow-up questions there. Um, I don't know that you can say or should say, but I feel like it was hinted around in your statement there. You have some sort of separation agreement with WWE? Um, That's a yes. We can keep moving. You don't have to answer. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you're very welcome. And here's the other thing I wanted to mention, and I don't think I'm betraying any confidences. If we get too far down the road, we'll, we'll pivot if, if you get uncomfortable with it. But the conversation you and I had about Paul Heyman was sort of the different skill sets behind the scenes of WWE with creative folks. Uh, and we went sort of name by name and you said, this guy is masterful at, if you already have an idea. He will improve that idea tenfold. And this guy's strength is X, Y, Z. And that guy's strength is ABC. But Paul Heyman can really start from absolute scratch and create some really cool stuff. Would you say that's one of his strong suits, maybe more so than, than some others? Uh, you know, I don't want to compare Paul's skill sets to anybody else's. I, I, I do really think Paul. Yes, to answer the question, you know, succinctly, yes, Paul is one of those guys who can sit down with a blank piece of paper and imagine a story and imagine an angle or imagine a character. And I don't know that that's necessarily his strongest suit. It is a strong suit, but I don't know that it's necessarily his strongest suit. I think Paul's strongest suit, um, and, and it's interesting because I heard this for so many years before I had a chance really to work uh, I, I'm going to say work with Paul because I didn't work with Paul in WWE. I worked around Paul. You know, we, he worked on Raw. I worked, you know, focused on SmackDown, and we both had our own, you know, individual schedules. And they were, you know, but we were around each other quite a bit, and we got a chance to talk quite a bit. Uh, not not in the context of working together necessarily, but working in the same, you know, in the same company. I, I think Paul's strongest suit. And this is just my opinion. Is really with with his ability to build and see and add depth to a character i think that's probably much more of a strength in my opinion just my opinion uh of a paul's than his ability to arc a story for example i think I'll just speak for myself about myself. I think my strength is really my ability to see a beginning and a middle and an end in a way that is 
consistent and flows and builds and and leads to a, a climactic moment at the end that's you know satisfying at the end of a story not necessarily in building and in, in adding depth to a character that's not my strength it is paul's strength and i think that's a that's really what in an ideal world creative needs to be a collaboration all right, not and, and and what I'm about to say is not necessarily about WWE or about WCW or about ECW or AEW or TNA or any other acronym or whatever it is you want to think of, right? Or any other company. I just think in a in a in a general sense, in any creative environment, whether it's movies, television, probably music. I don't know fuck all about music, as you all know, but other than I know what I like. By the way, check out a chick by the name of Dana Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S. Go to YouTube, Google or YouTube, Dana Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S, Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. It'll blow your brains out. It's so fucking good. Anyway, I digress. I think in any creative environment, it's the combination of those skill sets that gets you to the best end result. No one person, no grand poobah, there is no fucking Wizard of Oz that can sit in the throne and say, yes, that's good, or no, that's not. Or you need... It has to be a collaborative effect because you're or, or, or effort because it's you're going to have people like Paul, for example, who I think is maybe one of the best ever in terms of creating a character and adding depth to a character in a way that really resonates with the audience. But he may not be the the guy who can sit and think through in a very visual way and really visualize a great arc to a story that has all the elements it needs to have to sustain itself over a long period of time. I'm not talking about a hot angle here or, or you know, shooting an angle there and, you know, having a holy shit moment. Those are not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a great story that people can invest in, right? That may not be Paul's strengths. And I'm not saying he's not capable of it, by the way. So don't, before anybody, you know, blows a fucking gasket and, you know, goes off and, you know, grabs a hold of their iPhones or saying, Eric Bischoff is burying Paul Heyman's ability to tell a story. Just throw yourself off a building before you reach for the phone and do, do the world a favor. But what I am saying is that not everybody has the same strengths. It's, it's no difference, I guess, than a reason, than the reason, you know, you, you don't have one guy that can play every position in the NFL. Some people are better at other things. And I think that collaboration and the magic lies within, you know, f- first of all, finding those people that have those strengths and, and understanding and recognizing them. And then the real magic, and this is where it becomes so difficult, is marrying those people in in hoping or developing the chemistry that you need to be able to sustain that kind of collaboration over a long period of time because creative people have a tendency to be a little difficult to work with people who are artistic and this is what we're talking about creative is art art is creative people who are artistic have a tendency to just want to work by themselves 
it's hard to find people that are collaborative because what I see in my head may not be the same thing that you see. Let's just say, for example, I'm the Paul Heyman of our team, Conrad, and you're the Eric Bischoff or you're the Bruce Pritchard. Just because I see this character in a certain way and Conrad may go, yeah, but in this storyline, this character needs to be on this particular journey and these particular obstacles need to be put in, in front of you know his or her path. And this is the way this story should go. That may conflict with my vision as the guy who created the character. It, it, it needs to mesh. It needs to fit together. And the only way that that happens over a sustained period of time, not for a week or a month or, you know, an angle, but over, you know, months and years and in a best case scenario, decades, is if there's chemistry and trust. And that's the hardest part. It's not that it's very difficult to find people who are truly qualified creative people and, and identify their strengths. It's even harder to create an atmosphere or I, I identify those people in such a way where their chemistry actually fuels each other and makes each other stronger because it's it's just not the nature of creative people to to work that way. They want to be independent. They have strong ideas. They have strong opinions, and they're emotional. Most of the time, pe- people that are really creative tend to be uh, emotional people. They wear their emotions on their sleeves. You know, they're not like lawyers or 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 doctors or accountants or jet pilots or architects. Those are all very or engineers. That's a different side of the brain, right? Yeah. The creative side of the brain it, it generally evokes uh, a, a lot more emotion in people, and that's where the chemistry part of this becomes such a challenge. I'm glad that we. Uh are sort of going into the weeds on this, but I can't help on the heels of some more recent WWE talk than to at least try to ask a follow-up question here. And I know you're going to have to maybe tiptoe, but some major news happened not too terribly long ago. Both, uh, the co-presidents of WWE were relieved of their duties effective immediately. And the stock took one hell of a tumble. Uh, I think someone wrote that. Vince lost nearly $400 million in like 20 minutes or something. Uh, but 25% of the company's value just vanished. And a lot of people are, are left scratching their heads about Michelle and, and George, you weren't, you know, maybe there, uh, too terribly long to be able to comment, but I'm sure you had some sort of reaction when you saw the news. Uh, you know, I, I well, obviously I had a reaction because um, it, it was big news and it was a big drop and it was all over the place. Um, but you know, I didn't know George at all. I didn't. I mean, I knew who he was, obviously, and I would see him in meetings, you know, from time to time. But you know, his his side of the business, his world, had nothing to do with my world. So uh, there was not a lot of um, communication, business wise, other than just, hey, how are you? Good to see you. How things going? Great. Um, same with Michelle. So I, I think I had one conversation with Michelle right after uh, it was announced that I was coming in. We had a very cordial, uh, personal, you know, welcome to the team kind of a phone call. Um, didn't discuss business at all. Um, so I, I didn't know either one of them uh, on a personal level, and I didn't work with them on a business level. So um, 
But I was still, nonetheless, they had both been there for, I think, 10 and 11 years, uh, respectively. Uh, and it's a big move. You know, when you, you, you yank the president of a company right before <laughs> you're, you're, you're about to do a you know conference call and reveal your you know quarterly earnings, that's kind of a big damn deal. And my first thought was, wow, something, you know, something major had to have been going on or gone down. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm on the outside looking in, just like all of you. I only know what I read. Um, but look, you know, Vince McMahon is not a guy who, um, tempers his, his decisions once he makes up his mind. And I think it's a strength, by the way, uh, once he makes up his mind, he's going and you know, he's not a wishy-washy type of guy. And I think the WWE is a, is a corporate entity has served well as a result of that. I don't, I don't think there's any strength in being wishy-washy about decision-making. You know, he, he, he made the decision, he moved, and he's going to move on. And I suspect, you know, if, if I had a ton of money to invest right now, I'd be investing it in WWE stock. I can't wait to ask this follow-up question. Um, this is a tweet that uh, Dave Meltzer sent, and I know that just gives you an aneurysm. But no, not anymore. Not anymore. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. A few days ago, right after this news happened, uh Dave was asked, was there any reasoning for WWE's recent top brass firings or did I miss a newsletter? And Dave quoted it and said, and I can't wait to get your opinion, what you're willing or able to share. Dave writes, everyone that works for Vince McMahon has an expiration date. You just never know when it comes. That stuck out to me like a sore thumb and thought, man, I can't wait to ask Eric about that. But even reading the question, you had a bit of a reaction. What say you? I, I mean, I don't know. Let's let's look at. You know, it's easy to make a statement like that. It's easy to, to you know, it's a cool little headline. It's a cool little thing to say, and it'll get some attention. It's good clickbait. Um, but let's talk about the people that have been done that have been a part of WWE for decades. Kevin Dunn has been with WWE since I think he was prepubescent. His father was, Kevin Dunn's father was, I, I think, in, in the production side of WWE when Kevin Dunn was, was still 14, 15 years old and would come in and clean out offices and take out the trash. Kevin Dunn is one of the most talented people, you know, on the face of the television planet, as far as I'm concerned, and has done a phenomenal job building an amazing team of people who, by the way, many of them have been there for decades, not just Kevin, many of them, many of them, some of them people may recognize, most of them people wouldn't know if I gave you their social security numbers, right? You know, and, and it's one of the reasons that I love being there when I was there because, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go to the arena. You know, it's funny when I went back to WWE, I'd, I was there from whatever it was, 2002 to 2006 or seven or five, I don't remember. And, and when I went back and I went backstage, I was seeing some of the same cameramen. I was seeing, you know, it's just some of the same people on the production side, Kasama, you know, I mean, so many people that I would see that I knew and had developed a relationship with. So I didn't feel like I had been gone for that long. Whereas with the talent, there was a handful of talent that was there, you know, Randy Orton and a couple others that were still there, you know, after I came back the second time. But for the most part, all that talent was brand new. 
and I, you know, I took took a while to get to know them, you know, because there's like a hundred of them running around backstage all the time. You only see them for two hours a week, then they're gone, and it, so the familiarity is in in the the tenure of some of the most important people in that process in the process of producing a television show is phenomenal. So I, I think, like I said, great clickbait makes you sound smart, makes you sound like you know something you really don't understand, but it's not true. It's not, it's not contextually. It's just, it doesn't fit when you look at the, the, the number of people. Uh, I mean, there are people there uh, that Sue Atchison, He's been there for 30 years. Kerwin Sophie's same deal. I mean, forever. Forever. So, and, and these are just people that I can name off the top of my head without thinking about it too much. So I think it's a very unfair thing to say. I think it's misleading, but it's great clickbait. Let's talk about, uh, Dave. I know, uh, you started to cut me there and, and so many of our listeners are in tune with your feelings on him that they can't help but have a little fun. Like Justin tweets in, if Dave Meltzer fell over in a forest and no one was there to see or hear him, would he still be wrong? <laughs> well, I don't think falling in a forest is either right or wrong. So I'm not sure how to answer the question. If you fall, you fall. And if you don't, you don't. And if people pay attention to it, they do. And they do, or they don't. I don't know. It's a weird question. Um, oh, come on. I don't, I don't know, know how to respond to that Is one. he still wrong? Come on. He's just getting, uh, he's trying to get under your skin about, you know, how hot and heavy you've been uh, after Dave Meltzer. But you and I had an off-air conversation. And I think you've started to come around on old Dave a little bit. Mm, I, I, I be careful with that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, be really careful. Context is king. Um, I just made up my mind. It, it's look, it's like the, everybody has an expiration date that works, works for Vince McMahon clickbait thing. You know what I mean? Cool tweet, bro. Makes you sound smart, bro, but completely out of context and, and not applicable. Um, but I just, I've made up my mind that I'm, I'm going to react a little bit differently to some of this stuff. Well, let's see if we can put that to the test in the coming weeks. Uh, Tony flowers uh, writes in, what was the most wrong you've been during your wrestling career? For example, I told my wife that the John Cena character was just capitalizing on eight mile and he wouldn't last six months. Of course we know John Cena became a legend. Uh, what about you though? Do you remember thinking back, boy, that's a fucking miss. That'll never work. And then surprise, it was over huge. Mm. Wow. I'd have to give that. I mean, I'm sure it's out there by the way, but I'd have to dig through the recesses of my mind to kind of dig it all up. As you know, I don't. I don't hold on to stuff very long. Sure. You know, I don't, I don't live in the past. I don't dwell on success or failure necessarily. Um, unless we can do a podcast about yeah, it, call it say, 83 weeks yeah. for Christ's sake, then I'll do it. <laughs> but I need a lot of help <laughs> in order to come up with material to talk about, as you know, um, you know, n not from a creative perspective, cause I've never really felt that passionate about any one thing to be shocked that I was wrong about it. 
And when I say that, I've been passionate about ideas, don't get me wrong, but I've never been so passionate that I was absolutely sure that it was going to work, if that makes sense to you. I, I was passionate about trying and I was passionate about my vision for it, but I've never gone into anything creative, nor will I ever. And I think as I got older and more experienced, this only became um, more solidified in my view of the world when it comes to entertainment. Um, you never know how the audience is really going to react. And just because I'm fervently excited about something and just chomping at the bit to to put it together and put it out there for the audience to see it. I know damn good and well, it's a maybe 50, 50 shot that the audience is going to react in the same way that I am. And, you know, in fact, 50, 50 is pretty fucking good. If you're batting 500 in the creative business, you're, you're a rock star, right? Hell, I'd take 33 and a third and be pretty comfortable with that because you just never know. And um, so because of that, I've never really been, you know, shocked that something that I felt so strongly about wasn't going to work or something that was so, in my opinion, so horrible did work because I've always kind of put, and it, it kind of goes back to with something that we talked about a few weeks ago. You know, I've never programmed, I've never created for my own taste. Oh no, that's a, that's a, that's not right. That's not fair to say. I have created for my own taste, and occasionally that's worked, but I've also created for my own taste, and it hasn't. So, But I've always been aware that just because it's something I like doesn't mean it's something that everybody else is going to like and vice versa. And we've talked about that a lot. That's why I think wrestling needs to be you know, a buffet. You know, it, you, If you're going to write – if you're only going to write the kind of wrestling that you as an individual like – the odds are you're going to be wrong more often than you're not. But if you have a good understanding of what segments of your audience likes and you can interpret that and you can see the patterns and connect the dots with things that I, for example, might not dig, but I can see why the audience does that just improves my odds of being successful as a creator by about, you know, tenfold. If you can't see that, and you're only limited in, I mean, here's a perfect example of that, Bill Watts. Bill Watts is a personification of what we're just talking about here. Bill Watts had a very, Vern Gagne was as well, by the way. Vern was broader. Vern had a broader palette of, of, of you know, creativity than Bill Watts did. Bill Watts was myopic as hell. You know, he only saw things one way, his way only. And, you know, I experienced that firsthand, as, as did a lot of people in WCW, I think in late 91 or, or 92 or whenever the fuck it was, 92, early 93. It was disastrous because it was, it just was, that was just Bill Watts's vision. And unfortunately, it only appealed to a small percentage of the audience. Let's uh, keep it moving here. We've got an excellent question here. One that I know you're going to be excited about from Chris Herman. He wants to know who was a better kisser, Linda or Stephanie? Hmm. That's a tough one because the mother doesn't, or the daughter doesn't fall far from the tree in this particular case. I, 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 I got the sense. Oh, this is embarrassing. I, I, 
And I'll be so careful how I answer this because I just know how this is going to go over. Um, let's just say I, I got that feeling that Linda was pretty into it. And I don't know if it's because I was in the house. I don't know if it was because I was the younger man and then I kind of brought out the cougar in her just a little bit. I don't know. All I could tell is that, and this is something that's, it's, 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 it's magical. It's, it's the energy that, that, that you feel when two people embrace for the very first time. And it's the anticipation that culminates in that first initial physical contact. Sometimes, sometimes there's sparks and sometimes there's not. And I think although both of those situations were really kind of cool in their own way, I, I, I kind of felt a little special spark with Linda. All right, you're going to make a note here to clip all of that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> real deal heel. We're just having fun here for crying out loud. If you're taking any of that serious, you just really need to get a life. Yeah, I'm ready now. What'd you crack? Was that a beer? Are you drinking already? Well, man, come on. Some of this stuff I'm going to hear about later. Uh, let's just go ahead and get ahead of it. Uh, hey, it wasn't my idea. I can have fun with it if I want. Uh, Real Deal Heel writes, since his recovery is going so well, do you think Kevin Nash could come back for one last match? Do I think he could? Yes. Do I think he will? No. Well, it depends how much money is involved. Kevin's all about the green. So I guess if there was enough money involved and he had a little bit of control or a lot of control over what he was asked to do and he was in there with somebody he wanted to be in there with and, and felt comfortable with, sure he would. But I don't I don't see that in his future. He looks great, though, doesn't he? He looks fa- fantastic. It's ridiculous, the before and after, you know, after he's had all of, uh, you know, the stem cell stuff and then, you know, got a new knee put in and got his hips to realign. He did a little before and after photo maybe a month back on Instagram and it just caught everybody off guard at the remarkable turnaround. And you got to think he, he, I mean, he, I know a lot of legends. I don't, I haven't talked to Kevin about this. I'm just saying a lot of legends have made a lot of money, uh, flying to the desert for one last match. And, uh, if somebody over there gets on a little YouTube spree and sees a, a whole bunch of diesel stuff or NWO stuff, it could happen, huh? Oh, I think it could happen for sure. Um, and, and and that's a situation where I think, yep, would Kevin Nash jump on that plane and fly over to Saudi Arabia for a bag of nickels in a heartbeat? But, you know, probably other than a scenario like that, I'm not sure Kevin has a desire to get back in the ring. He's a pretty happy guy, and he's successful. He's got a, his movie career. He's healthy, you know, and that's... You know, he's been in pain for such a large, you know, Kevin's a good guy. We don't talk, you know, on the phone all the time, but we do see each other on the road. We love hanging out together. and We do talk when we're together, but, you know, Kevin's been in pain for probably the last 20 years. He's been in a, a ton of pain, a little bit like Hulk, you know, maybe not to the same extent because Hulk's back was so bad. But when, when you've been in pain that long and you've been 
you know, accommodating that pain and taking medication for it and being limited by it, even just the little things that, first of all, he's a big fucker. You know, you're limited by your sheer size, you know, when you're as big as Kevin Nash is. Getting on planes and moving around, and uh, the world is not built for people as big as Kevin Nash, so it's already tough. And, and as you get hold, older and things start breaking down, it becomes even more of a challenge. And then when <laughs> and when you've had whatever, he's 17 knee surgeries or 20 knees or whatever the hell he's had, you know, to finally get out of that pain, I, I think he's probably reluctant to do anything that would jeopardize that right now but that's it's my guess uh interesting question here from michael eldridge uh and we get variations of this all the time when did eric know the nwo angle had run its course oh you know about the same time that i realized everything had run its course uh, i've talked about this so many different times but in august of 1998 well, I got called into a meeting over at Turner uh, Corporate Headquarters over at Techwood, uh, not in the CNN Center, Techwood, which is where all the really heavy-duty shit went down. That's where Turner really started, was over in Techwood. Um, and I got, you know, I sat down with a bunch of people that I'd never heard of before, didn't recognize, who were going to tell me how to produce wrestling. I knew right then and there that not only was the NWO going to be, you know, watered down and diluted and become a challenge but so was everything else in wcw so one of the things i regret more than anything is not leaving i thought about it i talked to my wife about it i was ready to quit you know quitting anything kind of goes against my grain um i just i have a hard time quitting um even things i should quit um but um i I regret that that decision but that was the time you know, when you have a bunch of people that know nothing about your business, that didn't even know what night of the week it was on, and I'm not bullshitting you about that. Uh, now, maybe it was a trick question, and maybe people were shocked that I would ask it in front of, you know, a bunch of people who were, you know, way up the food chain than I was. And maybe they thought I was being belligerent and, you know, cocky or whatever, disrespectful, which I probably was. I get that. But, you know, when you ask someone what night of the week is Nitro on, and they look like you, like, you know, deer in the headlights. It tells you everything you need to know about their ability to, you know, guide you in the way that wrestling should be produced, particularly when they didn't know anything about the history of the business. They didn't know anything about the history of WCW. They had no idea what the audience was responding to, not responding to. I mean, it was literally like they just got dropped in one day and said, okay, you guys take over wrestling. You guys go tell this guy how to, how to produce wrestling without ever having watched it or knowing anything about it. It was pretty fucking incredible. But that's when it was late August. I think it was August or mid August, late August, 1998. Let's talk about it from a creative standpoint, though. I mean, you gave a very behind the scenes answer. Was there ever a time when you're maybe in the back watching on a monitor and you see something happen and you realize, fuck, man, I have killed my baby here. I should not have done that with the NWO. Well, it was all about the same time. You know, it, it, it probably, I mean, I knew it was, I, I knew it, you know, the first, you know, kick in the teeth I had was, in 98, as we just discussed, but it, it didn't really start to manifest until probably early 99. That's when the finger poke era. Yeah, that, but, but that's when it's like, 
okay, what's the best way to do this? It's like if, if, if you throw a brick, a cinder block into a small pond, you see the big splash. Well, the big splash for me was in 98, but the ripples from that splash didn't really hit the shore until the early part of 99. So it's hard for me to disconnect the two. You know, it's not like one day I went, oh, my God, this shit sucks. It started, and like I said, 98, and you didn't really start seeing the effects of all of that. And it wasn't just that. It was a lot of other things. But you didn't really start seeing the impact of the decisions and the change of direction and the limitations and the, the new cultural influence, you know, brought upon you know, Turner by Time Warner and new executives and people coming in and trying to run shit they knew nothing about. You didn't really start seeing that manifest on television until early part of 1999. Fascinating question here. Also from Michael Eldridge, you know, I've never talked about this, but since you're much closer to the situation, I bet you've got unique insight. Michael writes, since Eric is close with Hulk, did you ever have conversations with him about Hogan knows best and whether or not Hulk regrets doing it? So for some of you who maybe don't recognize the phrasing here, Hogan knows best was a reality show, uh, gosh, probably 15 years ago. And, uh, it followed around the lives of Hulk Hogan at the time, his then wife, Linda Hogan and his two kids. And, um, well, as with a lot of reality shows, once the uh, camera stopped rolling, it wasn't exactly picture perfect and the marriage was dissolved and a series of events happened that were less than ideal. And a lot of people wonder, you know, did the reality cameras maybe escalate some of that? Because that has been the story with other reality TV shows. You're uniquely qualified to answer though. Yeah, I am, but I, I have to be respectful, you know, uh, as I would, and not just because Hulk and I are good friends, but, uh, you know, when you have information that's deeply personal, that's not public knowledge, uh, I tend to keep it to myself. Um, I'll go back to Hulk's own book. That is public knowledge. Um I, to answer the question, short answer, yes. I think the, the Hogan Knows Best show probably exacerbated an already existing problem. So it's not like Hogan Knows Best created a problem, but it certainly exacerbated it, probably fueled it, probably expedited you know the end of their relationship and all the other negative things that happened. And, you know, I, I did have lots of conversations with, with, with Hulk about it. And, you know, it's funny, the idea, now this is going back quite a while, as you said, 15 years ago, whenever it was, when they did the show. And, you know, reality shows were all the rage. You know, everybody wanted to do a reality show. And reality shows back then were much different than they are today. There's still some reality shows, like the Kardashians, for example, and a couple others, I guess. I don't watch reality TV anymore that are similar in terms of their tone and, and their approach. But the majority of reality shows are non-scripted shows, as they prefer to call them in Hollywood, um, because reality shows have such a bad <laughs> connotation, um, which is garbage TV, you know, and they were producing. So for example, you know, you, you're doing a reality, you know, first of all, Hulk's house was the set 
so you've got cameras in your house at setting up at six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning, and you're shooting all day long, sometimes so eight, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And then guess what? You get to get up and do it again. And when you've got your wife involved, and you know, I think it's fair to say Linda was a challenging personality. I'll, I'll leave it at that so I don't get sued. Um, go read Hulk's book. <laughs> he went into more detail than I did. Or I can, I should say. But, uh, yeah, I, th- I think the pressure, you know, everybody goes into it going, oh, wow, this is going to be great. We're going to be making all this money. You know, wow, they're going to, you know, our house is going to be on TV. This is going to be fun. And it's fun for, I don't know, day, two. But then you can't quit. You can't say, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to go shopping today. I don't want to do it today, or I'm going to go out on my boat and you know, go cruise around in the golf, or, you know, the kids had to do, you know, participate, and the schedule was intense. It's however much work you think it is, multiply it by 20. However intrusive you think having cameras in your home is going to be, multiply it by 20. However much fun you think you're going to have, divide it by 100. And that's what's that's what producing a reality show is like when you when it's in your home, you can't get away from it. And I think again, the relationship between Terry Bollea and, and Linda was such that it only made things worse. Her personal habits only really, really made things worse for everybody, and everybody suffered as a result of it. So it it did. It, I think it exacerbated it. It probably expedited the end of the relationship and all the things that that took place, um, but it didn't cause it. it, it th- those problems, those were underlying issues that were that were there long before the reality show became a part of their life. Chris Herman has an interesting question that you'll have a little more fun with. Maybe he says, "We've heard several wrestlers and even Bruce state that if Eric went out with the boys, he would always pick up the tab. So spill it, Eric. What was the largest tab?" You know, that's, it's a little misleading. Um, there was a period in time when Bruce and I were working together in TNA and, um, I was in a different situation than Bruce was. And I made sure that I picked up the tab, but when I was out with the boys, so to speak, uh, I didn't pick up, I didn't pick up their tabs. If I was, if I took, you know, for example, again, in TNA, you know, if I took out the writing team and, I'm careful how I say this, but if, if I'm, if I'm knocking on, you know, seven figures doors because of the money that I'm making, you know, in TNA and the money that I'm making with my own production company, and I'm taking someone out to lunch, who's making, you know, 40 or 50 grand a year, um, who has two young kids, am I going to pick up the tab? Of course. Yeah. yeah. I, and I did oftentimes, or if I just knew I was in a better situation, it was easier for me to afford. Um, yes, I would. Or if I had an expense account and it was a legitimate business expense, then yes, I would. But I, you know, I didn't throw money around just for the sake of throwing money around and trying to be a big shot. I did it when I felt it was appropriate or in certain situations had um, an expense account and it was a legitimate expense because it was legitimate business. Now, as for the biggest tab I ever paid, it was your father-in-law's. <laughs> that was not a surprise. Almost got me fired. No, I shouldn't say it. It didn't almost get me fired, but it, it did take a significant amount of explanation 
unfortunately at the time things were going really well in WCW and the people that I had to explain it to, you know, trusted me and, you know, didn't think I was bullshitting them partly because they knew, you know, Rick, but yeah, I mean, told the story before, but in case anybody doesn't remember it or haven't heard it, we were at Disney MGM studio shooting and I brought Antonio Noki came over and a ton of, you know, Japanese, you know, talent came over uh, Masa Saido was there. Muda was there. So many people were there. Uh, and big, big deal. Um, Mr. Baisho was there. He was kind of like the business side of New Japan at the time. Everybody was coming in. This was kind of like either right before or right after we really formalized, you know, uh, this true working relationship, not a press release working relationship, but a legitimate one. Um, that involved, you know, significant amounts of money going back and forth and licensing and merchandising and all kinds of things like that. But we were all at the Swan Hotel uh, over in Orlando on the Disney property. And the Swan Hotel had a phenomenal sushi bar at the time. And everybody was there and we were celebrating. We had just had a big pay-per-view. I think it might've been 94. I can't remember, but we had a big pay-per-view. It was hugely successful and, Rick said, ah, it's on me. It's on me. Drinks on me. Sushi's on me. I went, oh, this is awesome. And then the next day I got a phone call from the manager of the Swan Hotel. (laughs) said, because they knew who I was, obviously, with with WCW. We were doing business there. They knew that we were doing television production. Mr. Bischoff, we got a little bit of a problem. I said, what is that? He said, "Uh, somebody in your company walked out on a tab last night. I said, what? I said, I'll, I'll take care of it. What, whatever it is, I'll take care of it. It was over $5,000. So, yeah, I ate that one. Actually, the company ate it. I only ate it temporarily. I had to eat it to get off the property without, <laughs> without somebody calling a cop um, or, or damaging you know, WCW's and Turner's reputation at the Orlando studio. So I covered it and then um, put it on an expense report that got a lot of attention. <laughs> $5,000 for dinner. What the fuck? But I, after I explained it, it was all good. Imagine how many $7 drinks that was. That was a lot. Yeah, there was some sushi involved and all kinds of other stuff. And I don't, you know, I know it was over five. You know, I don't, I don't think it was seven grand. It was somewhere oh. between five and seven grand, $5,800 or something like that. Yeah, I've seen some of those too. All right, let's keep uh, let's keep going here. Let's bounce around a little bit. Uh, we've got an interesting question here uh, from that Bullock boy. We get variations of this. I know we've asked it a few times in different phrasing, but uh, people are obsessed. Uh, would you entertain an offer to go work for AEW as an on-screen character or perhaps behind the scenes in creative? I don't know. You know, it's just it's hard. I, I can't say yes or no. You know, so much would depend on what, you know, what, what, if it was an on-screen character, what would the role be? Um, I've said this before. I, I've had the privilege of spending a lot of time on camera in my career. I started in 1988, you know, I hosted a show on ESPN five days a week, which led me to WCW. Um, and I started out, although as a, a <clears throat> excuse me, a C squad announcer, I, I moved my, my, myself up 
to the point where I was doing play-by-play on the A-show and going head-to-head with Monday Night Raw. Our A-show was going against their A-show, and I, I had fun doing that. I had even more fun, you know, being a character, you know, uh, within the NWO and performing on that level, which is quite a bit different. You know, play-by-play was fun. I enjoyed it. In many ways, I enjoyed play-by-play more uh, than even the role I had in NWO. It's hard to explain, you know, because as a play-by-play person, you're telling a story. You know, you're creating imagery. You're trying to create a story or an image or emotion in people's minds that they may not see on their own. You know, you're enhancing the product as best you can and, and advancing a story in a way that maybe the audience wouldn't follow as well if they're just seeing what's going on on, on camera. It's no different than play-by-play in you know, football or basketball or anything else. Your, your job as a play-by-play person is to enhance what we're already seeing and make it more interesting and tell a deeper, richer story and create more emotion than maybe the, the, the visual that you're seeing is providing to you, right? So it's, it's an art unto itself. Play by play, as is color, by the way. I just never did color, but I was always a play by play guy. Um, and I enjoyed that because that's a creative process. You know, you've got to think of new ways, you know, to explain, you know, what's going through, you know, the action that you're seeing when you see a, a clothesline or a hurricane rod or some other, you know, big move and how that all fits together in the overall story that you're you're trying to tell to the audience because you know where that story is going. You know the emotion you're trying to create leading to a pay-per-view, for example, or leading into a main event or whatever it is you're leading to. So that that's that's an art, and I love that. And being a character in the NWL, well, that was a different kind of art. That was a different kind of performance where I was creating emotion. I was trying to make people hate me, you know, and, and being a heel, I think, is the most liberating role one could have you know i never could understand why rick flair for example hated being a babyface. hated it he loved being the heel and i i go why would you and this is before i was you know really in in the nwo thing and, and doing playing that character and i could why would why would you not want to be a babyface? why would you as a wrestling character why would you not want people to cheer you and and i it wasn't until i embrace the role as you know the the nwo guy that i really started to understand it because being a heel is the most and being able to get away with it you know week in and week out uh is so empowering and and having the ability to control people's emotions i literally felt like i had my fingers on a laptop and i could just push a few buttons and make people react exactly the way i wanted them to react the way I wanted them to react. And that is such a powerful, powerful drug that it's easy to get addicted to. And and I love that. I had a chance to go to WWE and essentially do the same thing in a much you know, bigger platform with some of the best talent in the world, with the most powerful you know wrestling show in the history of wrestling shows. So I've been able to do a lot of shit. And I'm so grateful for every second of it. That being said, um, if, if, if there was an opportunity that came my way from, from anybody, not just from AEW, from any, if WWE, I made it clear to WWE right off the bat that I really wasn't interested in doing anything on television. Not because I didn't respect their television, not because I didn't want to work with their talent, but deep down in my heart, 
I know, or at least I believe that I know, first of all, I know how the audience would react. The first time I come out, it would be a huge deal. People would react because people like nostalgia. Like, oh, they, wow. They, they like surprises. They surprises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going to get this artificial positive reaction. And you'll, it'll last for a couple of weeks. And then over a period of time, people will start subconsciously, if not consciously, and certainly in the, you know, peripheral media. Um, notice I didn't call them dirt sheets. Did you pick up on that? Peripheral media. It's a new buzzword. Get the shirt. Peripheral media. <laughs> 83weeks.com. If eventually, within a short period of time, consciously or subconsciously, people go, oh, well, that's, we've kind of seen that before. Well, that's that's kind of like what they did. That's like kind of like he did in WCW. It's a little bit like that angle he did in WWE. Oh, that's kind of that reminds me of something I saw in TNA. And eventually, over a period of time, it'd be like <sighs> snore. <sighs> Here we go again, same old shit. And I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to do something that feels like something I did before because I know the audience is going to be disappointed and I don't want to set myself up for that failure or set the audience up to be disappointed, set the company up for any company that I would work for. I wouldn't want to set them up for failure being pretty certain I'm right about this. And I certainly wouldn't want to put myself in that position. Don't need to do that. Don't, that's not fun. Um, and and it, it would and it wouldn't be challenging to me. Could I go out and be a fucking nasty ass, cocky, arrogant heel as a performer? Yes. Now here's the problem. And this is hard to talk about because it sounds like I'm putting myself over and I don't mean to, but when you've been around as long as I've been around, it's hard for people to hate you as much. You know, when you're 40, when you're young, you're coming up, you used to be the announcer, people didn't really like you all that much anyway, and now you're just embracing all this power and hooking your wagon to the end of you. It's really easy. That's fertile ground, right, to, to create a character on. <clears throat> but after you've been around for so long, this is a problem. Again, I'll go back to Ric Flair, and I'm not comparing myself to Ric Flair because he's an entirely different you know, universe than I am as a character and as a, as a wrestling personality. But the, you know, this, the, there's a certain parallel. You can't hate Ric Flair. He's been around too fucking long. He, I used to say this. This is going back to the late 90s. I used to say, Rick, because you know, we get into these debates about him being a heel or a babyface. I say, Rick, you could literally soak puppies in kerosene have them follow you out to the ring, set them on fire, stomp them out, then get in the ring, and people are going to cheer you because you've been around so long. I'm sorry for the visual because you know I'm a dog lover, but you get the point. I said it. You know, <clears throat> I had to go back to what I said. But there is, you know, there's certain people you just they may have been great heels back in their day, but you bring them back 20 years later, and people are so happy to see you that you're not going to get the same reaction. So there's a lot of reasons why I, when I went back to WWE, I made it clear I didn't want to be on TV. Just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do what Paul Heyman's doing. Didn't want to do it. Um, not because I don't love performing. I do. Just because I'm pretty aware, self-aware of what happens with a character like mine. Now, all that being said, if anybody were to call me, WWE, AEW, anybody were to call me and say, Got a really cool idea. You've never done this. That would get my attention. 
And if it was something that deep down in my heart of hearts, I really believed I could pull off. Of course I would. Cause I'm a fucking ham. I like, I'm, I'm, I like going out and performing. I get, you know, I get as much pleasure out of that as I probably do just about anything else. Um, but I gotta be honest with myself. Late to the nitro party writes in, uh, in the few times you've uh, participated as a wrestler, what's the worst you've ever been potatoed. So I'm sure you caught a live round here, there, any of them stand out? Not really. Um, never happened. It didn't. The guys that I worked with, whether it was Flair, Roddy Piper, or Hulk, or uh, I think I think I tangled with Randy once or twice. Um, Undertaker, not Undertaker. I'm sorry, Kane. Uh, I never worked with Undertaker. Kane, um, Cena, Austin. They all took such great care of me. They were just a thousand percent pros. Um, probably, probably took better care, care of me than they should have, you know? Uh, um, but look, I've only had one injury in the ring. Well, actually it wasn't in the ring. It was getting thrown off a stage. Uh, I did an angle with Kane sometime in July. Cause I remember I had to get on a plane and fly to Cody, Wyoming right after it happened. And Kane choke slammed me off the side of a stage and, you know, I'm superstitious about rehearsing, and I didn't want to rehearse it. I just wanted to do it. And as a result of that, as he came and picked me up, I was on the side of the stage, and he threw me off the side. And there was a pad there. It was all, you know, everything was cool. But like an idiot, because I'm not trained and didn't want to rehearse and didn't want to take any advice, and blah, 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 blah. like an idiot, subconsciously, I knew I was going to hit the floor. So I started reaching with my right hand instead of kind of tucking my shin and rolling my shoulders a little bit and just taking it. I started trying to figure out where the floor was. And as a result of that, I ended up breaking a couple bones in my thumb. Not, not a big deal. Didn't even know I did it until the next day, really. Um, when my thumb swelled up size of my foot and <laughs> turned all purple and shit. Um, but th- that was my fault. That wasn't anybody else's fault. That was just me being an idiot. Uh, but that was the only time I've, I've ever, ever felt anything in the ring. Uh, let's oh, I, I, take that, I take that back. I took a spear. But see, this didn't hurt. It just, it just kind of knocked me goofy for a second or two. I took a spear from Bill Goldberg. And I don't know if it was you know, Bill's misjudgment or me, my fault, probably my fault. Um, I didn't position myself where I probably should have. I was too close to the uh, ring ropes when I took a spear from Bill, which, you know, two things happened. One is he got more momentum because <laughs> he had more distance to cover. And two, when he finally speared me uh, off my feet, <clears throat> crossed the ring, you know, there's no way to make a spear look like it hurt without just laying it in there. So when he hit me, I was a lot smaller than, you know, I was probably only 200 pounds at the time and Bill's a pretty powerful guy. So when he hit me with that spear, I, I went back in the back of my head, bounced off the bottom turnbuckle. And those turnbuckles are not soft. Those are not, those are not cushy little things. And it knocked me out for just a second, two, two or three seconds. I blacked out for a minute, but came to pretty quick. But that didn't hurt. It just, the lights went out for a minute. Lenny Bakken has a question. I know you'll sink your teeth into. Hey, Lenny, how the hell are you? Lenny Bakken's a good dude, by the way. Absolutely. If you're looking for any investment advice, he's your guy. 
I probably can't say the company he works for without giving a 30 minute disclaimer. So just look him up. Lenny Bakken, uh, current choice of beer. Hmm. Depends where I'm at and depends on my mood. My favorite beer of all time is called cold smoke. Cold smoke refers to like, have you ever been on a lake and you see people skiing and you see the big rooster tail coming up off the back of the skis or you see, you know, speed boats going across the lake. There's a big rooster tail of water behind the, behind the boat. Well, when you're downhill skiing, Cold smoke refers to the, the plume of snow that kind of follows you as you're going, you know, zigzagging down the side of a mountain. That's what cold smoke is. <clears throat> cold smoke is a Scottish ale that's brewed, I think, in Bozeman, Montana, maybe somewhere else. But I know it's a, it's a Montana beer. You can only get it in Montana. It's a Scottish ale. It is absolutely the most delicious beer I have ever had. And I'm talking about around the world. And I've, I've, I've drank beer in more countries than anybody I know. I've, I've had a lot of beer in my life in a lot of different places. That's my favorite. Um, but I'm not a beer snob. Like if I go to into a restaurant and I don't see something I like, I'll, I'll have Coors Light. I don't care. I'm not picky. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of really hoppy IPAs, you know, because I'm, I'm what they call, okay, we're going to go into the weeds and beer drinking here. All right. So if you're driving down a road, if you're on your way to work, I know I usually go into the weeds when I'm talking about the business of the wrestling business, but I'm going to talk about the business of the beer business for just a moment. There are different types of beers that are brewed specifically for different occasions or reasons or applications, if you will. Beers that are a Pilsner, for example, is a very light bodied beer kind of a fresh tasting beer, very, very little hops in, in, in it. Just enough to give it the beer flavor, but there's no lingering kind of hoppiness, which a lot of people are addicted to. A lot of, when I say addicted, I mean a lot of people really, really enjoy strong hoppy flavors. I'm not one of them. I've only had one IPA, and I swear to goodness, I'm not, not blowing smoke up Steve Austin's ass. No reason for me to do it. I'm not going to make a nickel off of what I'm about to say, but I'm the type of guy that if I sit down and I have a, and somebody says, here's a great IPA. I'll take one or two sips of it and I'll kind of stash it off to the side and go get a Miller light or a Coors light. I just don't like hobby beers. I don't like that strong aftertaste that I get with a, a with an IPA. Steve Austin's IPA on the other hand is delicious. I don't know why. I don't know what kind of hops they use, but they do. And it's great. I like beer that is referred to within the beer industry as a session beer. And a session beer really describes a beer that is formulated, created, designed, so you can drink two, three, or four of them in a session. It's, some, it's for people that like to drink multiple beers, whether you're watching football or you're you're out with your friends or whatever it is. You're on a picnic, you're tailgating, whatever. You're going to have more than one or two of them, right? Hoppy beers, those heavy, heavy, heavy IPAs are not session beers for the average person. You'll drink one or two of them and you're, it's a one and done kind of a beer, maybe with dinner, kind of like wine, 
right? Now, some people will drink three or four bottles of wine. I'm not going to name any names, but <clears throat> you may be related to them. Um, some will. I, I personally can. I, I don't like wine that much. And wine to me is very heavy. After one or two of them, the, the thrill is gone for me in terms of taste. Session beers, on the other hand, tend to be pilsners. And there's some really good German pilsners. And there's a lot of good, you know, craft pilsners. But pilsners are the lighter, lighter body session beers that I'm more attracted to. Occasionally, occasionally, I'll find, like I was just down in Florida, for example. There's a nice little place down in Florida called the Crown and Bull that has a lot of local beers in there. And I'm not sure if it was at the Crown and Bull or another another little craft beer place that I went while I was down there where they had a mango habanero beer, which was just awesome. Awesome. You want to know another little tidbit, Conrad? Okay. This is really interesting. I I think it's interesting. You know that I used to live in a little town in Arizona called cave Creek, Arizona, right? You've mentioned that. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. The reason that Lori and I moved to cave Creek, Arizona is because sometime, and I think it might have been 98, whenever, whenever the Super Bowl was in Phoenix, and I think Pittsburgh actually played in it. I have to Google it. Might have been 97, 98. Anyway, Turner sent, you know, flew Lori and I out to, to go to the Super Bowl, right? And at that time, we were living in Atlanta, and I was brewing beer. It was kind of like a little hobby of mine. My kids, my kids were really little, and on the weekends, I'd have my kids washing all the bottles, and I'd go get the ingredients, and I had this beer, you know, home brew kit, and a pretty extensive one at that, so I could brew, and I had, you know, like 40 of these big two-liter brown, you know, beer bottles, and I would brew my own beer. My kids would help. Lori would help. It was kind of like a little family affair. It was really fun. I made all kinds of different beer. I was really into you know, home brewing at the time and reading a bunch of materials. Anyway, I heard about this beer called Cave Creek Chili Beer. And I now this is before I was invited to go to the Super Bowl in Arizona. I had known about this beer for a couple of years. And I actually found some in of all places, Minnesota, while I was up duck hunting one year. And I tasted it and it was a very, you know, it was kind of it looked like it came in a bottle. It was a clear bottle like Corona. Um, but it had a little jalapeno in it. And I, I tried one. I went, this is the best because it was so spicy. You like, you drink this beer. By the time you were done, you had to have another beer because you were sweating. <laughs> it was like the worst, or excuse me, the best possible scenario, right? Spicy beer. So then when Laura and I got invited to go to the Super Bowl, I remembered that this little microbrewery, this little craft brewery was in a town called Cave Creek because it was the name of the beer. Ed's Cave Creek Chili Beer. So we... We stayed at, you know, four-star resort in Scottsdale and, you know, big Super Bowl shindig. Everything's going on. I said, fuck this. Let's rent a car and go to Cave Creek because I want to find this brewery. And we did. We rented a car and skipped all the Super Bowl parties and all the stuff we were supposed to be doing. And we drove to Cave Creek and found this little little brewery called the Cave Creek Brewery. And I, we both fell in love with this town. It's this old, it used to be a mining town, you know, north of Scottsdale. It's kind of set off. It's a cowboy town, a little bit like Cody, Wyoming, but in the desert. Beautiful, beautiful town. We fell in love with it. And we spent an afternoon there. No beer, didn't, didn't drink, but said, you know what? Someday we're going to move here. And lo and behold, two years later, we moved to Cape Creek, Arizona, just because of the beer. 
that game you're talking about, January 28th, 1996, Sun Devil Stadium, Tempe, Arizona, the uh, Cowboys would beat the Steelers there, 27 There you 17. go. Yeah, there you I, go. I just did a little Google search on your beer here, the uh, Crazy Ed's Cave Creek Chili Beer. It was once labeled the worst beer ever made, but then had sustained success, started in 1992. What I love so much about you is you're so analytical and, uh, I don't know. There's just a lot of layers to you. If I had asked, or if I had been asked this same question after you just gave this great explanation of beer, Lenny wants to know, Conrad, what's your current choice of beer? Miller light. Uh, Don Flamingo wants to <laughs> <laughs> Don Flamingo writes, what is the story behind your tattoos? Eric, I didn't realize you had them until I saw them on the Jericho cruise. Cheers, mate. And I think. Uh, some of our listeners who saw your WWE DVD a few years ago, uh, saw you, you know, some like B roll footage of you riding the Harley. You don't have forearm tattoos there, but you do now. Uh, why did you get the tattoos? Uh, and this, I don't mean for this to sound weird, but you got it sort of on the second half of your life, not the first half of your life. Usually kids are getting tattoos, you know, at a much younger age. You're, you're a grandpa getting tattoos. What's up with that? Well, first of all, I'm not a grandpa, but I'm old well, enough to be on, one for sure. On. With Garrett, oh, oh. You, you are accidentally. You just don't know it yet. I mean, somewhere. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, I, first of all, I've you couldn't see it, I guess, on the WWE tattoo, but I got my first tattoo, oh, about 1996. I've got a big uh, cross on my upper right uh, deltoid up on my shoulder. Uh, and I had that, I think I had it at 96, perhaps. I've got another one on my left shoulder that goes from probably the top of my shoulder almost down to the top of my left elbow. That's a, it's a, it's a very, uh, God, who was the artist? Who, who's the tattoo artist? He's got a famous rum, I think. Um, oh, I'll think of it. I'll think of it. Anyway, he was very famous for doing like World War II uh, kind of uh, service art. Um, not Ed Hardy. That was a t-shirt guy. But there was another one. Sailor Jerry. Sailor Jerry. Sorry, Jailer, sorry. Sailor Jerry was a very, very famous tattoo artist in and around the, the, the World War II era and did a lot of really cool Americana-type tattoos. So I've got a big tattoo of my wife an American flag and stars and stripes. And it says across the top of it, born on the 4th of July, because Mrs. B was born on the 4th of July. So I've had tattoos for, for a long time. Now the, the newer ones that I've got, I've got two literally on the top of my forearm and the upper forearm, um, is a three mast ship, uh, a tall ship, if you will. And my wife said the same thing. Now keep in mind, We've been together for 37 years, right. so there's not much about me she doesn't know. But when I got, when I told her I'm going to go get a tattoo, she goes, "Oh, what and where?" And I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get a ship." And she looked at me like, "What?" Because like I don't, I don't spend any time on the water. You know, occasionally I'll go out on a fishing boat, catch some crappies and shit. But it's not like I, you know, I have this dream of sailing around the world or having my own boat or anything like that. And I explained to her that. When I was a little kid in Detroit, I I would daydream 
I would sit in class and I was in this, uh, I was in a classroom. I remember specifically, and this was before, you know, you change classes, right? This is elementary school, fifth, sixth grade, something like that. And I'd sit in this classroom all day long and I'd stare out the window and I hated school. I just wasn't interested in school. Nothing. Uh, the only thing that interested me was history. Everything else I hated, couldn't stand it. So I'd sit in the back of the class and I would stare out the window and I would imagine in, in, in my head, I literally would picture myself being on a ship and sailing around the world because that was the only way I could get through a day. And I did this every single day and I would fantasize and I would use my imagination and I would think, what if, you know, I was going, you know, it's funny, we'd be in the, in a history class, for example, and hearing about the, you know, the silk trade route and you know, Marco Polo and, you know, how, you know, the, things were traded and the, the Mongolians and things like that. And I would, I would fantasize, I would be listening in class and I would be fantasizing, you know, that I was on the ship. And what if I was exploring the world? What if I had a chance? Cause at the time I lived in Detroit, there was only two people in my family that had ever left Detroit. It was my dad in the army who, who, who went to Germany for, I think a year, a year and a half and, and was out of state, you know, obviously, you know, in basic training, uh, and my cousin Marvin, who got drafted and went to Vietnam and was shot in Vietnam and wounded and ended up going to Japan. And he would say, when I was a little kid, he would send me coins from Vietnam. He was, actually, he would send me paper money from Vietnam. But he, when he got to Japan after he was shot and wounded and he did a lot of rehab in Japan, he would send, send me little Japanese coins and he would write me letters. And that was my, you know, I only had two people in my family that had ever been out of the state, out of the city. And I never dreamt that I would ever travel and I would ever see the world. So this was my way of escaping, literally. And I would fantasize all day long. And that's kind of what it re represents to me is, you know, use your imagination. You know, I, I, I got it because to me, I think that period of time when I was a little kid where I developed my imagination as kind of a coping mechanism, I guess, more than anything else, is probably what has led me to the various things in my life that I've been successful at in one way, shape, or form. And the fact that I, this, you know, eight-year-old kid in Detroit that didn't think he'd ever get out of Detroit or see the world or have a chance to travel have been all over the world because of professional wrestling. I've been to some of the most interesting places on the planet and met some of the most interesting people in the world and have experienced things that I never thought I would experience because I used my imagination. So that's, that's how it all ties together. I love doing these with you. Uh, Josh Kuhn writes in, does Eric have any good Tony Schiavone stories? You know, we've, everybody has an Eric Bischoff story, but I don't think you've spilled the beans about some good Tony Schiavone stories. Oh, I guess I, I've lived a boring. First of all, I don't know how many of those Eric Bischoff stories are true. I mean, some of them are, you know, I mean, I've done some stupid shit, right? Publicly, intentionally, that people can talk about. Diamond Dallas Page talked about one last week, right? Showed up at his hotel room door, gave him a chance to punch me in the mouth, but I took my front teeth out first because I didn't want to have to get new dentures. Um, so I've done some silly shit. But I think a lot of it has probably been created, mm, elaborated upon, <laughs> whatever. 
but I don't have anything. I don't have any, I don't have any stories about people. Like I didn't, despite the, the, the urban narrative to the contrary, I didn't hang out with too many people. I mean, I did it. You know, we, we, when we do nitros, we'd all go to the bar because there was a nitro replay. So we got to watch the show on TV that we, you know, we were, we just got done doing and yeah, we would hang out and there were some fun, fun times and probably crazy shit here and there that would happen. But for the most part, my life was pretty fucking boring and I didn't really hang out with Tony. I didn't. And when I did, it was pretty professional. Tony was, Tony was not Tony Schiavone. In the nineties, the Tony Schiavone that I worked with is not the Tony Schiavone that, you know, today, no. Tony is so much more loose. Now he's so much more fun to hang around. He's himself. Tony was very buttoned up in the nineties. He was like all business, at least around me and most people that I saw Tony didn't hang out much. I never saw Tony hanging out at the bar. Tony had done doing his work and he'd go to his room or whatever it is he was doing. Uh, maybe he went somewhere else and hung out with other people. I don't know, but I, you know, I just don't have, Tony was not the same Tony Schiavone that we know and love today. Not that we didn't love him, but he was a very more buttoned up kind of pro, you know, I don't want to say straight arrow kind of guy, but he would have never imagined that he had the personality that he, that he does. I mean, I get a kick out of hanging around Tony Knight. It makes me laugh like crazy. He's the nicest guy in the world. But he was much more reserved and kind of straight and narrow back then. So I don't know. Sorry, man. I wish I and I wish I could make something up. One of these days I'm just gonna make up some bullshit that's really funny and hey, say hey. say it happened and <laughs> might as well. Everybody else does. We do that on Fridays. This is Monday. Uh, uh of my co-hosts, uh, who do you think has made you laugh more? Bruce Pritchard, Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, or Arn Anderson? Mm. Those are some funny motherfuckers. I, I, I know. And that's the hard part is they're all funny. I'm going to go with Arn and, and I say Arn, not because I've spent so much time with Arn when he was like in a good mood and having fun. But when, when you get art, Arn is like a chainsaw, you know, it, 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 once you get him started, he's wicked. Yeah. He's rolling. I mean, when he gets on a roll, it's hard to stop him. And he gets funnier and funnier and funnier as he gets more into it and into it. And when you first told me you were doing a podcast with Arn, I think, I don't know if you remember this, maybe I, I do. You said, this is gonna be I said, biggest one. I, I said, this can be your most successful one. If you can get him out of his shell, if Arn can get himself out of his shell, I knew you could do it, but if Arn will allow himself to be Arn and forget that he's got a microphone in front of him and just imagine that he's sitting around a table you know, with some chicken wings and a beer talking to his buddies, he's the funniest fucker on two feet. Um, and there has been, not that it's happened often, like Bruce Pritchard has probably made me laugh more often, sure. but I've never laughed harder at anybody than I have at Arn when he's on a roll. And what's fun is it doesn't even feel like Arn is trying. Like he's just off the cuff, like no effort into it. He, his timing and wit, I think is probably second to none in wrestling. I, I look, if uh, like I said, if Arn really wanted to and could get a little bit of coaching, maybe a little professional training, not much because you don't have to fix anything. You just have to kind of point it in the right direction. That's a good way to describe Arn's humor. 
Um, he could be doing stand-up comedy anywhere he wants because he is a funny, funny guy because he doesn't try. That's when it's really funny. You know, when people are trying to be funny, it's like when people try to act. If you're trying, you're not acting. If you're trying to be funny, you're probably not. But if you're having fun and you're and you're making yourself laugh, it's not that hard to make other people laugh. And that's Arn is that guy. He doesn't have to try to be funny. He just fucking is. And he's his his witness timing are incredible. If you could book like a uh, a touring like stage show across the United States with two wrestlers, I think it would be Arn Anderson and Kevin Nash. I mean, the improv with those two guys every night would be fucking outstanding. Kevin is another one. Kevin has got the quickest wit. I mean, you could, you could probably put him in any conversation and it may take a couple minutes for him to adjust to it, but he is, first of all, he's a really well-read guy. He's smart. People don't realize how well-read <clears throat> Kevin is and how much he really understands, uh, uh, about the world outside of, you know, sports entertainment. Um, he's a very bright guy, but he, yeah, he's got great wit too. I mean, yeah. Those two would be hilarious. I'd buy a ticket. we got lots of questions about this. Uh, the war games, lots of people want to know, you know, since you uh, have sort of stated here on the show that you weren't always a big fan of gimmick matches and sometimes you didn't feel like the stakes were right. And we had a, a gimmick match with rather nominal stakes. Do you think that maybe in hindsight, the variations of this question, you should have handled the war games a little differently. Uh, just to make them more special and kept them around because we have lots of questions like why no war games in 99. And I know you left, uh, you know, before that pay-per-view would have happened, but it wasn't even on the, books. well, that's a good answer. <laughs> so, but, but, but you had decided clearly, you know, that, Hey, that pay-per-view would have been just a few weeks later. You guys were moving away from it. What, why, or what about in hindsight, do you think you would have handled the war games differently? Did you just not have the right creative? Did you think it had just run its course? Were you bored with it? Why did you move away from it? All of the above. It, 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 it just, I know we needed really well-defined tentpole events. Halloween havoc was one October Starcade was the other, it, you know, just a few months later in December. And if you try to make every event you do a tentpole event, meaning a very big, meaningful event, then none of them really are, if that makes sense. It's one of the reasons, you know, I mean, look, WrestleMania is the tentpole of all tentpole events. That's what makes the world go around. People start talking about, you know, next year's WrestleMania before this one's over with, right? And it's taken how many years, 35, whatever it is, years to get there. Uh, Royal Rumble, very similar. There's a couple big tentpole events that support everything else underneath it. And to me, War Games just wasn't a tentpole event. It wasn't the one or one of the ones that I felt had enough of a personality and could be consistently created to help support and be a major pay-per-view event when it was in such close proximity to Halloween Havoc and to Starcade. That's, that's the answer. Well, we hate you for it. We wrestling fans love war games and we think you're an asshole for taking it from us. Just so you know, well, just so you know, 
it makes me even happier than I did. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. Hey, this is a fun question. Uh, Big Red writes in, Bruce Pritchard has often said that certain wrestlers don't need a championship to be over. For example, Jake Roberts, Jim Duggan, etc. Eric Bischoff, what are your thoughts on this philosophy? I agree with that. Um, Randy Savage was a, was an example. Scott Hall, I think, you know, no, look, and Scott Hall's had, you know, I guess intercontinental championships or whatever. I'm not a walking, talking wrestling encyclopedia. So do not bust my chops if I'm wrong about this, but for the most part, these guys didn't really need championships or belts to, to get their characters over and become a players, right? Certain Certain guys do. C- certain guys, Hulk Hogan, for example, as a world heavyweight champion, not that he needed the belt to be Hulk Hogan, but it just made a lot more sense because of how iconic he was, Hulk was, you know, a- a- at the height of his career. It- it- but there are certain people that are so valuable that whether they have a belt or don't have a belt or a championship or don't have a championship, really matters all that much because they're still so over Roddy Piper, I think probably fell into that category. There are just certain guys that are so over that if they have a championship or don't have a championship really doesn't matter all that much. And I think that's the category of people that are the most important, not are the most important. That's a fucked up way to say it. They're the most, um, flexible meaning you can put them in almost any story any situation with anybody and their value is so high that it elevates the person they're in the ring with whether or not there's a championship in, at stake that's a better way to say it that's very political that's what i get for watching the state of the union address last night very political today i'm trying not to be but i am i can't get politics out of my head i'm trying hard i'm gonna leave here from doing this podcast i'm gonna go i'm gonna beat my fucking head on a chunk of ice in my brother's backyard and i'm gonna get this shit out of my head because it's ruining it's ruining my vibe can we um can we have you get Mrs. B to film it and us, you know, put it online just for posterity, you know, YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go out and beat my head. There's a grill. I'm looking out the window. There's like four feet of snow in the backyard. And my brother has a big, beautiful aluminum grill back there. And I'll just go pound my head on the grill. I'll send it to you and you put it up on YouTube. Eric Bischoff doing hardcore backyard wrestling. You just hate to see it. <laughs> uh, by the way, we did mention our YouTube, uh, <laughs> We would love to have your support over there. Go to 83weeksonyoutube.com. Click the subscribe button and the notifications bell. Uh, we're at 39,000 subscribers right now. We're pushing to grow that. We're going to make that an initiative here in 2020. and going to give you some really cool incentives. Uh, we're going to give you uh, a lot of bonus content when we get to 50,000 subscribers. So uh, it's absolutely free. The cheapest, easiest possible way to support the show. 83weeksonyoutube.com. We'll send you directly to our YouTube channel. Click that subscribe button and the notification link. I think you'll be really, really pleased when we hit that milestone. Uh, Dan Torres writes in, why wasn't Bret Hart brought into TNA? The rumor and innuendo is he wanted to sign, but somebody was against him coming in. I never heard that story. Do you remember Bret Hart coming up in your days in TNA? Never once. And, and uh, you call it rumor and innuendo since there's no name attached to it. I'll just call it what it is. That's just bullshit. 
never happened, never discussion. Anybody that says there was smoking crack, it just never happened. It never came up. Well, we, uh, we hope that we had a lot of stuff come up today that you were looking forward to. We've got, uh, I don't know, over 500 questions that were submitted for this. There's no way we could ever possibly get all the way through it. So, uh, we're going to start sprinkling some more of these bonus, uh, clips for you, and we're going to do it on YouTube. So if you haven't already go subscribe 83 weeks on youtube.com and uh, tell your friends about your new favorite wrestling podcast It's 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff right here on Westwood one every single Monday. Uh, apologize for uh, a bit of a, a variation last week, but still some new great content from the Jericho cruise, you and your old pal diamond Dallas page, but we're looking forward to a big quarter here. We've got lots of fun stuff coming your way. Uh, and I'm excited to, uh, to say that. Eric and I have been working on some other stuff behind the scenes that hopefully we'll get to announce very, very soon. Uh, until next time, he is at E. Bischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Westwood One for 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.